So Paul is concluding uh, his letter to the Colossian church, a church he's never been to himself. Uh, and, uh, and there's a lot of names in there, and that's for very good and deliberate reason. Have you heard of the uh, fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes? Do you know who wrote it? Hans Christian Andersen, in 1937, published the story as we know it now. He ripped this, downloaded it from a German version of a medieval Spanish story in 1336. But the Spanish downloaded it from, the, from an Indian version in 1283, which was based on a lost collection of fables from 1052. Hans Christian Andersen. What a cheat. No, no, no. no. Here's a definition of that story. We're going to go through that story in a moment for good reason. We'll see later on. Here's a definition of the emperor's new clothes. The collective ignorance of an obvious fact or deception despite undeniable evidence. Here's a version of that story. Two swindlers went to a city and convinced the emperor that they were preparing a magnificent suit from cloth, so special that only an honest man could see it. The emperor couldn't see it and was too embarrassed to say so. His servants couldn't see it, but since they didn't dare appear dishonest, they loudly praised it, praised it at every stage. And so when the special day arrived, the emperor was parading through the streets with his new suit, the swindlers had fitted him out, and off he marched down the street in his underwear. Amidst the silence of the crowds, a child was heard giggling and pointing at the emperor, laughing, The emperor's got no clothes! The emperor's got no clothes! At which point the emperor became aware of his own nakedness. And by now, of course, the damage was done, and the two swindlers had legged it out of the city. Christianity is the boy in that story calling out the emperor has no clothes to the power plays of our world. In all human sin and folly, only the God of the Bible tells us the radical truth that we need to hear about ourselves against the world that wears its fig leaves and parades around as though it is majestically clothed it is only the God of the Bible in Jesus Christ that tells us the whole truth. From the ordering of government and society and family and all social relations. Did you notice the ordering of social relations? The gospel comes to us and clothes us. Colossians 3.12 Put on then as God's chosen and beloved. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So whilst Hans Christian Andersen borrowed this nearly 1,000-year-old story and adapted and changed it, as all stories are, the essence of the story is found in the truth of Christian faith, and that is found in the Scriptures. And this is what Paul has been tackling in Colossians. It's known as the Colossian heresy. He's got a whole load of false teachers coming in, making certain claims about certain things. Paul had taken a good look at the superior religion of these people and their false humility, their self-imposed ritual, their self-discipline. And he exposed it. He called it out. He laughed at them. 
he showed them Christ in all his glory, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, in him, and through him, everything that has been made was made. What could you possibly add to that, church, right? Anything? Nothing. He called it out and laughed at them. And people who struggle with this kind of unbiblical religious paraphernalia discover that when they meet Christ, they have been, up until that point, walking around naked, so to speak, parading. And God comes to us, doesn't he, in his mercy and his compassion and clothes us in our right mind. So Paul goes on to describe the clothing that is fit for an emperor. It's not a cloaking of ourselves in pious actions. Some of us like to do that. It's nothing other than putting on Christ, our new self, clothing ourselves with him. It's good that we got this. We can clothe ourselves with something that we hadn't had before and we could never get unless it was Christ who came to us. Our new, new rules are not the rules. Are not the, our clothes are not the rules that we keep, but the love that we express. The love that is expressed is the essence of this. It follows from the golden rule, doesn't it? To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Oh, and um, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you read on in the Gospels, you also got to love your enemies as well. There's no escape. Every which way you turn, love, biblically defined in the nature and character of God, is the essence on which we order our lives. And Paul is bringing this to bear now on the Colossians. So the clothes are of, are, that we wear according to the Gospel are compassion, which takes enormous moral courage, by the way. Kindness, one of the great understated virtues, kindness. Humility, that's the one that I'm best at. Gentleness, patience. When we talk of these kind of values, though, that the gospel enables us to live. We never do it in our own strength. We talk of these kind of false rules and regulations that Paul listed in chapter 2. And yet, the passage that we've just read out begins with a list of rules and regulations, does it not? This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Wives... <laughs> Submit, put the tomatoes away, Brian, we throw them later, thank you, to your husbands. What great advice. Come on, ladies, let's be, let's be clapping and cheering and whooping. Finish the sentence. <laughs> Who said that? Oh, Chris. this is the problem. Richard, you didn't give the whole context. You've got to finish the sentence. Thank you. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives. And in Ephesians, Paul develops that thought and defines what that love is. As Christ, hello anybody, loves the church. Now under those conditions, suddenly the word submit sounds quite glorious, doesn't it? But we interpret it in a bullying, coercive, power play kind of way. And we see it as a negative word. But it's not. So, Paul brings in what is called the household code. Guess what? Like Hans Christian Andersen, Paul nicked that from somewhere else. This household code is already 300 years old before Paul got his hands on it. He got it from Aristotle, the greatest or probably one of the most famous Greek philosophers of all time. But he's Christianizing it in a unique way. So we have instructions to wives and to husbands and to children and to slaves and masters. And Paul puts a decidedly Christian view on these things that are basically drawn out of pagan philosophy. The submission of wives... It's very awkward having my own wife here today, by the way. And the love of husbands is like a two-wheel bike. Because wives, if your husband abuses the obey word, and Christian men are not immune from abusing the obey word, you will obey me, it says in the Bible, that's a million miles away from what Paul is talking about. The submission of wives and the love of husbands is a two-wheel bike. Wives... Do not accept abuses of the obey word because that's not love. Husbands, if your wife isn't obeying you, are you loving her as the Lord requires you? <laughs> if one wheel of this bike is buckled or missing, you're not going to go anywhere. So holy love is that which wills the good of the other. That's a good definition of love. Do I will Rachel's good? Does she will mine? Do you will the good of each other in this church community? That's love. Willing is an action of intention, of the will. You choose to do the good. That's love in action. Holy obedience, then, is the non-coercive response to that love. The non-coercive, not bullying, not manipulative. We, we're saved out of those practices. The Christian life is an undoing of those manipulations and dysfunctions and distortions and sins into right relating. It has to be that. So when Paul says, wives, obey your husbands, the wives are like, yeah, because I will because my husband loves me as Christ loves the church. And I'm, I'm going to risk a, being a hypocrite alert at this point. By the way, every time I preach, I risk proving myself to be a hypocrite. <laughs> Husbands, I'm addressing you now. Is your wife more holy because of you? Ouch. Men, we've got to be men. To act like men. There are no naked emperors in the Christian household. 
And if this rule is abused, as it has been many times, we will always hear a little child giggling at us. And what did I say the child was right at the start? It's the truth of Christian faith. We will always hear the laughter of God when we parade around as though we are little emperors. Nelson Mandela, who you will have heard of, an amazing man of our times who died a few years ago, he said, I am not a saint. We will all agree with this. I'm not a saint. Unless you think of a saint as a sinner who keeps on trying. Like Jacob, keep on wrestling. Keep on trying. It's a good definition of what it means to be a Christian. So speech and conduct, we move down now. Speech and conduct into chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 is seasoned with graciousness. And this is the, the fruit of prayerful reliance on God. When you've spent prayerful reliance on God, it's incredibly hard to become a bully in the household. It's a sign that you haven't been prayerful and reliant upon God if you are a bully. So as Paul wraps up this letter, notice, as I said at the start, all of the names that Janet read so magnificently. Notice how relational it is. And this is one of Paul's deliberate ploys. He is saying, look at all the relationships that I am plugged into. Look at all the relationships now that bind you, Colossians, and me. Look at us all. He even names Demas in this list. And Demas is the guy that deserted Paul a few years later by the time you get to 2 Timothy. But all these relations at the moment are working out and playing out. So the gospel then is right relationships in action. The runaway slave Onesimus is named as well. He's going back to his uh, master Philemon, who Paul also wrote a letter to. Tychicus is the postman delivering the letter. He names Aristarchus and Mark and Barnabas, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nympha, and Archippus. It's interesting. Nympha is a female house church leader at Laodicea. Fascinating, eh? So when Christians are so rightly ordered in, in this context here, before God, we Christians declare to the world that the world is like the emperor with no clothes. We proclaim the gospel so as to clothe the world in its right mind, which is nothing less than salvation in Jesus Christ. So I want to share something as I finish from a book that I'm reading at the moment by Rowan Williams, and it is really, every page is like nectar. The Way of St. Benedict. Some of you would have heard of St. Benedict. This is going to be our application. He says that holiness is a set of habits that we enter into and practice. So uh, let me think of that phrase. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, practice makes... No. <laughs> practice makes permanent if you're doing it wrong as well as right. You might be doing it wrong. Practice makes permanent. But practice the virtues of Christian faith and you'll be wrestling and struggling with God and that's good.
The one who is holy is not merely a rule keeper. If, if I could just be a better Christian, anybody? <laughs> Anyone ever said that? If I could just obey five more rules, if I could just pray a little bit longer, <laughs> if, I, if I was just a better Christian, God would love me more. So the one who is holy is not merely a rule keeper, but one who, as, as Rowan Williams says, struggles to live without deceit. Embed that into your mind. The one who struggles to live without deceit. And if you meet someone who lives without deceit, you are often uncomfortable in their presence. And I guarantee that the person who lives without deceit has wrestled down and stared down all the demons that life throws at them. They've practiced And so relationship with others. Let me just ask another question here. Because Christianity is relation, uh, relational. Have, have you, has anyone ever struggled with someone? Has anyone ever had someone that they just didn't like? Yeah. Someone's saying that way too strongly. Yes, definitely, Richard. Yep, yep. I need prayer afterwards, Richard, please. Yep, yep. Yep. It's probably me. <laughs> Our relationship with others is the material that God gives for our sanctification. Think about that. That's why we speak the truth in love. It's why we forgive. It's why we love our enemies. These things work out in the real world. And so the gospel trains us to see each person as a gift, not a competitor, whether you don't get on with that person or not. They are a gift made in the image of God, right? Deserving of respect, and love, and forgiveness, and all of those things that the gospel gives us. So they're a person who is a gift, not competitor. They are a brother or a sister, not a maniac seeking our, dis our demise. <laughs> you ever sought the demise of someone? Just wish they'd go away? The gospel changes everything. It puts us in clothes of the kingdom. It's amazing, isn't it? In the book, Rowan Williams tells the story of, a, of an English priest who had a preaching ministry in the context of a university mission. The priest spent a long time trying to assess the currency of the university. And by that, I would guess it's something like assessing the spiritual atmosphere of the place. What makes this university tick? What is the vibe of the place? So he's, he uses the language of currency. What is the currency? Jesus does this to the seven churches in Revelation, remember? He names their currency that they're trading in sin and exposes it so that they will repent and live and move on. TBC has a currency too. I wonder what it is. Do you know what it is? Because we have one. Or two. So one day, this priest was thinking and musing, and he put his thoughts together, and the penny dropped, and he realized that what these young people were exchanging when they met with each other, the staff and the students, 
everybody on the faculty team. He worked out what it was that they were exchanging. What do you suppose it was? What do you think it could be? Think about people. We love a good moan, don't we? Mm. When they met, the students and staff exchanged grievances. And so the currency of the university was grievance. What's our currency? So the preaching priest translated this observation into an image of the circulatory blood system that we have in our bodies. He said, what you receive is what you give out. And round the system it goes. Grievance in, grievance out, grievance in, grievance out. You get back what you put in. If you put in grievance, you get back grievance. So let's expand this now. What would you say, maybe you could think about this in your own time. What would you say the currency of the UK is at the moment? It's a different country from just 10 years ago. What's our currency now? What are we exchanging? What is the currency of Taunton as a town? With its great history. What is the currency of... Preacher's going to get more personal now. What is the currency of your family? What have you been brought up with? And I say this extremely aware that my parents are over there. What is the currency of your family? How have they trained you to think about things and the world? I like to have a good argument because my dad taught me to enjoy having good arguments. Praise God. In a loving way. So what is the currency of your family? What is the currency of this church in your estimation? This is an extremely important exercise to think through. In what way do we contribute to that currency, right? So now as an individual, what is your currency of habit? Yours. Which might be different to your families. It might be different to the church. But what is yours? What are you feeding in that is going around the, circula uh, the, the circulatory system? Right? What are you putting in? Colossians 3, 5 to 9 exposes the currency of the Colossians. We read that last week. Colossians 3, 12 to 17 clothes our nakedness with the currency of the virtue of good habit. This is what the gospel does because of Christ. So, beloved, I, I, I mean, I, I have to say this. I have an incredibly um, responsible position in preaching God's Word most Sundays. It is not easy. I am like the emperor up here before you. You have a responsibility to sift the wheat and the weeds of the regular act of preaching. To sift it. 
to discern God's word for you. What is God's word for you today in this context of Colossians 4? How will God be speaking to you today about these things? What is that currency that we are putting in? I'm going to end with one wonderful long quote. It is a glorious vision of what Jesus Christ does for us. Let these words go round your system. Harold Kahn says this, the person who has the abundance of life that Christ came to bring us can spend virtue lavishly because his resources are plentiful, praise God. He can care for people unreservedly, the people near him and all over the earth, people of his own creed and color and nationality, and those of other faiths and races and nations, because his resources of care are attached to the limitless reservoir of God's care. He can afford to be slighted, shunned, hurt, because he has enough forgiveness in his heart for any crisis that comes his way. He can squander love upon the undeserving and the unresponsive because he knows there will always be more love where the last love came from. So don't give up wrestling, church, because Christ in you cannot fail. We can, but Christ in you cannot fail. Amen? Amen. Bless you, church.